This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with playwright Rory Godbold and Dr Carolyn Johnston, a Senior Research Fellow in Law and Biotechnology at the University of Melbourne. They joined me in the studio to talk about the voluntary assisted dying legislation that comes into effect this week in Victoria. Rory also wrote a play which is now showing at La Mama on the subject. It's called When the Light Leaves. I've got two special guests who've come into the studio specially to discuss a very important subject. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, voluntary assisted dying, which um, was passed into legislation as an act in 2017, November 2017, and it starts uh, really soon, tomorrow, in fact, 19th of June. And it's a, a very important uh, reform that had been campaigned on for many, many years, and um, there are so many people who um, have put a lot of energy and emotion into this subject because it is a really important um, issue around human dignity and um, and personal choice and the ability to die with dignity when someone is terminally ill. And so I have two uh, people here in the studio with me to talk about it and also the play that um, surrounds this, which is called When the Light Leaves, and it's written by uh, playwright Rory Gold... Gold sorry... My brain isn't working today. Rory Godbold, and he joins me in the studio, as well as Dr. Carolyn Johnston, who is based at the Melbourne Law School at the University of Melbourne, and um, she's a senior research fellow in uh, biotechnology and the law, and she's also an expert in medical ethics and worked in that field in the UK, according to her biography. And uh, and so we're going to talk about some of the legal elements, some of the practical elements, but also the real personal and um, human elements of this issue and the play. So I welcome uh, Rory to the show. Hi there, Rory. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having us. Thank you for coming in. And hi there, Carolyn. Hello, Amy. Good morning. It's great to have you and uh, it's great to talk about this subject, which I know is um, you know important for, to both of you and uh, many people in Victoria who um, have campaigned hard on this. Um, Rory, maybe I'll start with you because you have, I've seen a video of you even talking about the importance of needing this legislation and you have a personal um, reason why this was very much important to you and your family. And I was wondering if you could share with us how you're approaching this issue um, yourself and then we'll get into, you know, the play and... and yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, my involvement in this issue has been pretty unexpected. It's come about just through um, the fact that my father got quite involved in it um, in the final stages of his life. Uh, Dad was a nurse for 30 years. Um, he spent most of his nursing career in um, palliative care and then in the last years of his life, he went into particularly cancer care. So when he got a stage four metastasized cancer diagnosis, um, he knew exactly what he was in for. Um, and with that understanding, that intimate understanding of death, he decided that he wanted um, a, a say in how he might go. Mm. Um, so this was, you know, kind of finding out your dad's dying is a huge shock and then as he went through this process it was a huge shock but it was it totally opened up my understanding to life and death and and choice and autonomy and what it means to be human um so it's you know it was a gift that he gave me 
Um, and it's been such a an honour to take that gift and to continue to kind of uh, educate in the way that Dad spent the last couple of years of his life doing. Yeah. And um, it's interesting that both of your parents are and were nurses. Yeah. So it's an interesting <laughs> yeah. upbringing. It yeah. is, isn't it? Yeah. And you were from the country as well yep. in yep. South Grew up in, Yeah, in Inverloch. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, I mean, over there, it's such a close-knit community. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And obviously, even in the hospitals, everyone knows everyone. Yeah. 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 So mum and dad, like were known by so many people in the community it was because they did work at the hospital and the hospital is such like a nucleus of any community so mum and dad were quite well known um and when so my parents were living in darwin when dad got the diagnosis and they moved back home and like it really opened my eyes up to how great regional communities are because they stepped back into the community and they had a, a huge fabric of people mm. there to support them. Um, and in terms of the palliative care nurses, they Dad had been their boss. Yeah. So that was an interesting thing but also mm. a complex kind of thing as well. Um, that So it's a, regional communities bring a lovely thing but they also bring complexity. Yes. And, you know, there was no kind of... Uh, anonymity in that final stage for dad Mm-mm, yeah you certainly don't get much privacy no <laughs> news travels fast in yeah, the country yep exactly yeah, right yeah um so one of the elements when i was reading through um an interview that your dad did with andrew denton yep. on his podcast um and your dad i should say he's ray godbold he um said that really all of his other organs initially were very healthy and so he was a little bit like, how's this all going to pan out when every other part of me is really healthy, but I've got this, you know, tumour that is stage four. I mean, how did that play into his idea around having a sense of control or any control over how his disease might progress and how he might eventually die? Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing. And the character in the play says that, how will I yeah. die? And the nurse can't kind of engage with it um but it is that thing dad used to call it the catastrophic death so there's there's numerous ways you can go but then there's the catastrophic death which just you know there's a hemorrhage and Mm. you're gone um or you know there's the death that palliative care achieves for the majority of people um or there's all these other kind of curveballs to it but what was interesting with dad's death is dad was so in touch with what his death might be like but still when the process came and when the time came it was completely unexpected Mm. and it was completely unexpected because of some of those reasons because he was still a six foot tall man who was now you know just under 40 kilos um some of his organs were working really really well so it's that the the breakdown of the body in those final stages is where the kind of really unpredictable things come in Mm. and also being in a regional area there was some problems with medication and getting access to doctors when the stages were becoming quite difficult um so and at that stage mum was because he was in home dying in the home yeah mum was administering the medication and for her as a nurse that became quite complex as well so mm. all these kind of things made a bit of a perfect storm um and then you know the event did kind of get to that messy stage which dad was fearing so much yeah um 
that's highlighting some of the issues that we'll pick up with Carolyn in just a minute. Um, I want to understand uh, why your dad or um, why he became such a prominent campaigner because he was talking about voluntary assisted dying whilst he was in fact also dying from cancer and he wanted um, this legislation to pass I believe or he wanted some kind of way for people to have a choice um, towards the end. Um, In terms of his aims or passion for this legislation what was at the heart of what he wanted in this because I know he had himself um, said publicly that he had um, acquired a drug that he might use. He wasn't sure and as you said it's so unpredictable that you often don't really know when to take it and when when it's the end. So yeah what was some of those kind of issues that your dad was um, dealing with in terms of his public advocacy and also his personal choice? Yeah well the nurses there's been heaps and heaps of nurses that have really added um, weight and voice to this. So mm. thank you to all the nurses for sharing yes. their personal stories. Um, but uh, Dad, yeah, he became a bit of a cowboy in the end and I think you'd like that expression <laughs> that um, he did go a bit rogue. So he was on the front of the age acquiring um, Nembutal from Dr Rodney Syme and both of them, that was a provocation to politicians and to the authorities Dad came home from that thinking, well, the federal police could knock on the door and the house could be raided. We didn't hear yeah. anything. Mm. So that, that to me was a sign that the law was out of step with what was happening if they were just going to turn a blind eye to something so public. But what Dad wanted, Dad, as a lot of nurses and health professionals do, as well as people that have lost loved ones, they carry those those deaths around them, with them. Mm. Good deaths, bad deaths and... I think, you know, Dad as a palliative care nurse really, really tried to do his best to make every one of his patients comfortable, at peace with death um, and in control of their death as much as he could. But he saw that there was limits very rarely to the Mm. palliative care system. So I think he just wanted to kind of highlight that and, and to make it possible for people to have these good deaths. The interesting thing about Dad was that even though it was about his control and his death, a lot of the process was about other people, so helping other people in the future to die well, but Mm. also the reason he did it was for us, his family. He knew what the death might be like and he wanted to avoid putting us in that difficult situation. Um, And that's a really interesting thing to think about when people are looking at this. People aren't being coerced into it, but they are thinking about themselves as well as their loved ones. Yeah. Yeah, well, I certainly um, understand that because I've had loved ones who've passed in a very horrible way and you know the the main memory I have of them is the way that they were in their last days of dying and you know they're on morphine they're not making any sense you know there's a lot of a loss of dignity and also of just self there's still you know some parts of them there but not it doesn't feel like it's the same person you knew. Mm. Um, so I can see that's also a, a kind of factor that some people don't want that traumatic yeah. memory for their family and no. they want to remember the good times. I think death does carry trauma yeah. for the people that are left behind. But I also think just because the person is dying, so 
you know, their existence is limited. I don't think that trauma in that instance is any less valid. Mm, absolutely. Yeah, just because it has an end point doesn't yeah. mean it's not important. Yeah. Yeah, it's so true. Um, in terms of the this uh, legislation which has been brought forward for the through the Labor Daniel Andrews government and obviously through many campaigners in the health sector and beyond, uh, many people have said that the legislation itself is... Uh, fairly rigorous and uh, conservative and it's not um, going, to, going to be open to a huge number of people because there are a number of um, things you need to do to qualify and situations that you need to be in for you to be able to access um, voluntary assisted dying. So Carolyn, um, in terms of your legal expertise, what are some of the um, safeguards that were put in place, because um, I know this was hotly debated in the parliament around, you know, just how um, should this be accessed and who should access it and what what stage of um, illness do you need to be in to access it? What were some of the main qualifiers that um, are in the law that meet, that people have to meet? Well, it's been described as some of the most rigorous uh, assisted dying legislation in the world um, and the, the Act runs to about 130 pages. So it's, it's, it is a pretty rigorous... Um, process, uh, I think about 150 people a year are likely to access it over the, the coming years, and we'll see what happens in the, the initial phase. Um, there are certain eligibility criteria, um, so somebody has to be a resident in Victoria, they have to be an adult, so 18 and over, they have to be able to have what we call decision-making capacity, they have to understand what's, you know, what's on offer and the implications of that. But I think the key thing is that um, they need to be suffering from an advanced progressive illness which is likely to cause death within six months. Um, and this was one of the contentions before Parliament. So originally it was proposed that there should be um, a 12-month period, so a death um, likely in the next year. But I think because of the, the uncertainty around prognostication, that was reduced down to six months, unless somebody is suffering from a neurological condition like um, motor neuron disease or, or dementia, in which case you, you'd be thinking about the 12-month time limit. Um, and I think one of the key issues also is that... Um, the person has to be suffering in a way that is intolerable to them and and can't be relieved. So it's a very sort of a personal journey, I think, where this is... We're not saying the legislation replaces palliative care, but it's for those people where palliative care really can't offer enough in terms of pain, pain relief or control over the, the manner of their dying. Mm. And the person actually has to initiate the yeah. conversation, so no uh, medical practitioner could say, well, you could do this. No, that's right. Mm. And I think that whole idea is so that um, it enables the person to, to make a voluntary uncoerced choice. There, there are concerns, I think, around the world with thinking about legislation of this type, whether people might feel that they, they need to make a request so they're not a burden on their family members. Um, so, yes, the idea is that the individual has to initiate the conversation, that healthcare practitioners must not do that. And as far as I'm aware, that includes not even putting up information in a waiting room. So the idea mm. then is, well, who will, you know, will there be enough information about this so people not only know that it's an option to ask, but also feel empowered to do so? 
I would imagine that's a very difficult conversation to start with a doctor. Yes, and you'd yeah. have to feel pretty knowledgeable, I think, in about what's on board and 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 where that conversation might lead, mm. and also comfortable with the person you're speaking with. Yes, yeah, yeah that's like, right, and trusting. I guess that's right, and and yeah. I think one of the issues around assisted dying is, well, will it breach the trust between a healthcare practitioner and a patient? Um, I don't see it like that. I think having a healthcare practitioner. Um, Standing by the patient and supporting them at that really difficult time is is crucial. Mm. Um, so, so in my mind, it, it's important that there is enough access to this in a way that is is supportive of of people who want to use it. Yeah, and yeah, as you said, if there's not a huge amount of um, public information, of course, there is online. You could you yeah. know do your own research, but if it's not kind of in your face where you're walking or sitting, and you probably it may not come to mind it Mm. may i guess it depends on the individual Mm. Uh, but also there are more than there is more than one medical practitioner who would be involved in this situation isn't there so it's not as simple as raising it with your gp and they sign off and if you fit all the other criteria you're done that's right and this is part of i think of the the rigorous process Mm. now whether it proves to be too rigorous we'll have to see Mm. because of course these are people um as rory has described with his father who are very sick Mm. um and they will have to raise the issue with uh, a first doctor um somebody who's who's willing to take that on board so that might be their gp or a specialist might be a specialist oncologist for example um and that first doctor will assess the eligibility criteria, um, you know, whether they're, they're suffering from that, that condition, the disease or condition likely to cause death, usually in days or weeks. Um, and then uh, a second doctor has to be involved, uh, again, to check in the information has been given to the patient, check the condition. And this doctor will be a specialist in that area of, of medicine that the, 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 the patient is, is the condition is the patient is suffering from um, then the patient has to make a, a written request and a final request and only then will if they fulfill the criteria will they be supplied with the, the drug mm. so I think that's likely to take in the shortest period around 10 days um, but it does require not only finding doctors who are willing to support it but actually being able to physically access yes. doctors and that might be a problem in a in a yeah. rural area yeah true and also really long waiting lists for specialists especially yeah, yeah. and there's a, at the moment there's no and they probably won't be published the amount of doctors who have done the training um there are the navigators who can point you in the right direction, but at the moment we don't quite know how many doctors have done the training. So no, how many? It's around about a hundred. Yeah, but, right. but but we're not sure. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so there will be an interesting process mm. for people to find, and maybe yeah, that will create a barrier whether they can yeah. get mm. in for the appointment mm. when they need to. Mm. Yeah, whether they can physically go as yeah. well. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, in terms of the training, are you aware of like what doctors? are trained in or what additional support or information they've been given to be able to have this conversation? Well, um, uh, as far as I know, they have to do some online training, uh, which lasts about six hours. So they have to fulfil those training criteria in order to be available to provide this support. And then um, the the healthcare 
practice that they're working in, say a, ho- a hospital will be providing some sort of internal training and support for um, healthcare practitioners who, who are providing this sort of support. So they, you know, there will be internal mechanisms, I think, within uh, institutions to provide extra support and debriefs and. Mm. Uh, and discussions. And is there an understanding of how um, the person will administer the dose of um, the drug themselves and where and in what kind of environment it happens? Is there any kind of um, specified scenario or is it more open? Well, um, the Act provides that the, the, the medication, the lethal dose, has to be provided in a, a locked box. Um, and then at the time of choosing, the person can, as I understand it, mix the, the drug and drink it. Mm-hmm. So that they will be doing that in their own home. And that provides, I suppose, some sense of, well, we don't know quite when and how that will happen. Yeah. Um, in Canada, we know that uh, about, I think it's about a third of people who are given the prescription for the drug to to uh, the, the the lethal drug actually don't choose to drink it. So something it's about having control over the manner of death and having the the surety of having the the drug available. Mm. Um, uh, but but yes, the idea is that the individual will, will drink the drug um, if they are unable to do that because they're physically incapable of doing that at the time. Then um, an application can be made uh, to the review board to have um, a physician. Uh, that the doctor can actually um, provide the drug. Yeah, yeah. And so that brings me back to Rory because that's you know is very much your father's story. Yeah. Um, could you share a bit about the timing for him and, I mean, how he was going to make the choice about when was the right time for him and his view of it being the right time for you guys too? Because I know, you know, it's really hard because you don't know when to say goodbye or like yeah. when when is the right time yeah it's uh, something that really sticks with me about the whole experience is that dad knew exactly the time when it was ready to take you know he actually died the next early the next day um but it so he kind of got to the stage where he felt that it was becoming unmanageable um, and then he decided that he he wanted to take it. At that stage, though, his physical condition had meant that he was unable to ingest it, which is mm-hmm. what I think is so great about mm-hmm. the Victorian legislation is that if someone has gone through the whole process that they're not precluded from taking or from accessing voluntary assisted dying if they've gone through the process Mm. um, because of their physical condition. Dad was unable to swallow um, and the the state that he was in, we were worried that if he attempted... um, you know, would what the situation might become worse and even more unmanageable. Um, you know, what happens if you can only take five mils of it? What happens yeah. to the body? There's all those questions that were kind of going through our mind. Um, so, yeah, he got to the stage and then we had to say, no, you know, we've, we've got to uh, do it in another way. Of course, then as well, there was all these... Uh, 
legal issues that might have come up if we did assist him to take it as well. Um, so, yeah, it was mm. a, a very difficult situation um, and it's it's great to see that clause in there that, you know, if someone goes through the process um, that no matter what their physical state is, they will be able to access what yeah. they want. Yeah, and that would be um, through a medical practitioner who knows the patient potentially or it could be... Yes, I, I, well, I, I, I suppose that would be the ideal. Yeah. Yes, it would yeah. be somebody who, who who knows the patient and can support them at that 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 end. Mm. Yes, yeah, yeah. I know it is uh, front of mind for many in the medical field at the moment. Um, you know, it's still controversial to some people in the community, and so we've seen some, um, you know, I guess picketing of hospitals, mm. yeah. particularly mm. the, the Peter implementation Mac. conference, there was yeah. picketing at that too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so people are concerned about, you know, this issue, and there are a lot of um, religious views that would come into this. Um, but, yeah, there is, I mean, the reason why Peter Mac, I guess, was targeted was because they were there to create the drug or to mix it up together um and you know they're not the only hospital mm. who needs to do that mm. um in in victoria but are there any um ways that perhaps if a medical practitioner felt uncomfortable or had a moral or religious kind of um feeling or um i guess they didn't feel comfortable doing it is there a way for them to still be able to um facilitate the patient you know seeing someone else if they themselves couldn't do it yes so the the act provides for conscientious objection which means that a healthcare practitioner doesn't have to be involved at any stage even providing information about it um if they if they feel they don't want to um, and we can see how this might play out with with access and provision with perhaps uh, hospitals uh, Catholic hospitals mm, yeah. um, uh, who have said that whilst they won't um, uh, provide uh, VAD they won't impede access and this is where I think there will be pathways towards uh, services who who will provide assisted dying yes mm. so there is conscientious objection to that and I think that that goes some way perhaps to uh, relieve the concerns of health practitioners who who really feel this is this goes against their, their their moral views and the law in essence is about comfort and boundaries and control and it's it's mm. important that it's there because mm. you know that's what it is for the patient it should be there for the doctor yeah. as well yeah yeah and I would think that a, a number of health practitioners would feel very uncomfortable about you know if they've, if they've got to know a patient over a long period of time uh, they don't want to feel that they're giving up on the patient, but at the same time, I suppose mm. they want to support that that individual choice that the patient has. So mm. it's, a, it's a tough one for them, I think. Yeah. yeah. And how does someone, uh, how does a doctor assess whether a person is feeling coerced by outside? influences perhaps they feel financially mm. coerced because mm. they can't earn money and mm. their family isn't well off or you know they can't they don't want to be um a drain on their family and are self-conscious about the impact it has on their family i mean i'm sure their family wouldn't see it that way but some individuals might feel uh, i guess a pressure or a sense of coercion mm. how does one i guess evaluate that 
Well, I suppose that's just through discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, and and both the, the doctors involved would be asking questions perhaps about, well, you know, how did you come to the decision yeah. to think about assisted dying? Uh, what are your motives? What's your understanding and your, your anticipation of what will happen? And, and I suppose try and draw it out that way mm. um, to make sure that it is a, 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 a properly... F- really chosen decision made decision yeah yeah um rory in your play which is fantastic congratulations um it's at la mama it's called when the light leaves and uh also the actors do a phenomenal job i must say pretty good Yeah, yeah very impressive yeah um there are some really interesting stylistic elements uh particularly the use of repetition and also that um use of the light swinging across mm. the stage which i found really um meaningful like gave a lot of emphasis yeah. on the dynamics of the emotions between the conversations yeah why why did you use the sense of repetition and what lines or emphasis were you placing? Because I could sense that there were some really important things that you wanted people to feel the full impact of um, yeah. and that the characters themselves also strongly felt when they were, you know, using this really strong repetition. Yep. Um, the way I kind of conceived the play, uh, it, it is a fictional play, but it did stem from me kind of working through my own trauma and grief um so that's kind of the structure of the play it's almost a memory play so Mm. these are important memories for the character who's dying it's kind of like the life flashing before his eyes in the final stages but for the characters that are left behind it's it's them kind of trying to grapple with what has happened um but also to hold on to the memories because we know memory is such a a bizarre thing that can shift and change you know as time goes on and, yeah. and and new things come into it or we remember a distinct detail so those repetitions are they're almost turning points for the characters mm. where there's something that's really sparked there and that they're either trying to recapture that moment or they're trying to really get their point across mm. that this is the most important thing in that memory yeah and the word uh, control comes up quite a yeah. lot as well yeah. what what sense of like what is it about control for you that is really important in this particular play but also voluntary assisted dying and how do you conceive of control being a good thing yeah yeah well when we were um looking at the structure of the play the kind of the through line we were thinking of was this idea of control and surrender that we we want control um but the inevitable thing with death is that it does make everyone who's involved surrender so that idea of um control was is so important to kind of motivate people and to make people feel safe and then the 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 surrender can come a a lot easily a lot more easily yeah 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 because it it's um even though there is this sense of wanting control um there isn't really and it is uncontrollable yeah and and still will be with Mm, voluntary assisted dying for some it will help them achieve um a controlled death which is you know if it's for a small proportion of people that's excellent Mm. let's do it Mm. but for some even people they've I think there's a statistic that there's 100 people that have already contacted the navigators to try and access it a lot of those won't be eligible Mm. for different reasons. So it it isn't going to um, wipe out 
bad deaths and it isn't no. but it, for some people it mm. will and for those people you know that's what it's it's for yeah and from your father and his perspective yeah. working in palliative care and in particular oncology and cancer yeah. um i mean it it's confronting for anyone in medicine to be in a field where death is yeah. the most prominent yeah. um icu is another example yep. critical care work and i'm just wondering what kind of impact uh it has on nurses like your father and mother and doctors who um witness death regularly and how, whether they feel that um the palliative care model is enough for those who don't qualify for voluntary assisted dying because a lot of people would still feel um I guess, torn, even mm. with this legislation being mm. available because, as you said, not everyone will qualify. Yeah, and that's the interesting thing about Victoria. It is quite um, a conservative law, so it will be interesting to see how that plays out in the next couple of years. Um, but, it, you know, if Dad was here, he'd definitely say that, you know, he, he could only do what was prescribed in the, the little green book of palliative care. Mm. Um, and in most cases, that suffices. Uh, in some it doesn't and it will continue not to. So mm. it, it will be interesting, um, yeah, in that respect. Yeah. Um, Carolyn, because we've just been talking, I guess, about the global context mm. and where Victoria fits in, mm. um, where do we compare or how do we compare in terms of other countries? Because um, clearly there probably is a bit of a sliding scale in terms of the, you know, access that yeah. people have. Well, um, I think the, the Victorian model very much mirrors, say, some of the North American legislation. So in Oregon, they have a Death with Dignity Act, which I think was passed in 1994. And that's, that's also for um, adults who are facing a terminal illness. Um, and th that legislation has now been replicated around uh, many states in uh in North America. Uh, we've heard recently of, of a teenage girl, Noah, in the Netherlands who was supposedly accessing uh, euthanasia, um, but later that was reported that she'd in fact died of, um, of lack of nutrition. But um, in the Netherlands, people can access euthanasia, and this is um, a physician you know, the, the doctor actually um, uh, performs the last step. And that's available even for um, people as young as 12, as long as they have their parents' agreement. Um, and, and even there, you can make uh, a request for assisted dying through an advanced decision. So even before you lose capacity, um, you, can, you can make that choice for a later time. And that would work well, perhaps, for people who are suffering from dementia. Mm. That's not going to be available in the Victorian legislation. You have to have capacity at the time of making the request. So, um, yes, it, 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 I think the Victorian model is, is pretty conservative, um, uh, but at least it's been passed. And, mm. you know, in the UK there's been numerous um, attempts to... Uh, put, put up legislation and that's always been, always fooled at, uh, fell at the last hurdle. So mm. um, I think that um, it's a good step. Yeah. It's like the damn wall is broken. So, yeah. you know, now yes. we'll see how it plays out. But yes. the, first, the first chink is out. But the way I understand it internationally is there's some countries where suffering qualifies and yeah. that's the only thing well, that's right. that that's, counts. Yeah. And Sorry. somewhere it's the, the, 
the prognosis that qualifies. So you don't mm. actually have to be suffering. Um, but in Victoria, it's both. both. Yes. You've got to... Mm. Yeah, so I should have said, in in, in the Netherlands, you just Mm. have to show unbearable suffering um, and not terminal illness. So that could be from from all sorts of uh, of things. And so that's a much more liberal approach there, yes. Yeah, Yeah, that is really interesting. And in the play, I mean, your father was, I believe, 59? Yeah, yeah. He passed away? 58, yeah. Yeah, and so, I mean, that is still a fairly young age yep. for an adult who, um, you know, has, I think he believed he would live a lot longer and he yeah. seemed like a very fit, you know, Well, he was still working and that's the kind of aim, isn't it? You want yeah. to retire and yes. you want to enjoy that retire. Exactly. And Dad was uh, felt really cheated of that. Yeah. yeah. Travel the world. Yeah. 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 You know, he's clearly <laughs> done well with three kids as well, I think. Yeah. Um, so in your play, though, we the age is even less. It's yep. um, I think about thirty four is the yeah. age of the character who's um, dying, and it is an interesting situation that you have them in um, because the majority of the characters are in their thirties, really. Yeah. Um, and it, it's an interesting thing, and it maybe I'm not sure whether it has a different. Um, element to it uh, given that a lot of people in their 30s may not have got married which that comes up as a theme in the play Mm -hmm. may not have had children if they wanted to may not have traveled or you know had a full career like they might have planned and so there are a lot of kind of elements for those younger people who may feel like they've been even further cut short Mm. from those kind of milestones of their Mm. their lives how did you explore that with your actors um because i think that it must be a challenge for any person of any age to kind of tap into the experience of death and dying for anything when i originally started writing the play it was originally for older characters and then i kind of thought oh well why why am I doing that? Why not link it closer to me? So the age mm. has been brought down closer to me. And it, it's that thing about it mirrors through um, the process of witnessing my dad's death. I confronted my own mortality through that, um, through that family connection. Um, so for the cast, it's been... I mean, there's such a lovely cast with such big open hearts, which you would have seen in the performance, but they've really tried to honour what it would be and they've really tried to understand, you know, the the issues and the relationships and and the interesting thing with acting is not to go in there and judge the character because there's a a chance that the play could become over-sentimental and that the relationships could be all caught up in the sentiment of someone dying. So there's still... They're really bringing um, a kind of wholeness to the character in how they react to the situations. They're, yeah. they're not altogether likeable characters, mm. um, which I thought was really important. But, yeah, I've just been so lucky to have a cast that was willing to go there, was willing to understand, and and it doesn't come up much for people in their 30s, this kind of issue. And I think mm. that's what I tried to do with the play is to just bring it down so people can start considering now the more we consider what we want our death to look like and how we want it to be the better prepared we're going to be there Mm. yeah when it comes Mm. exactly yeah it's certainly the case um that 
young people can get chronic illness when yeah. you know at any point but certainly i think the sweet spot is in the th- their 30s particularly women and autoimmune diseases for example yeah. so yeah i mean it could hit at any time and as we've seen with women and ovarian cancer that's another one that can mm. you know reach any person at any point mm. in their lives yeah um so yeah I, I can see that and i also did recognize that they weren't fully likable <laughs> which is why i i was really um interested in that to be honest because i was sitting there going i don't know how personally invested i am in in them yeah right which sometimes you do feel like you are yeah um and so yeah i i felt like i was more um thinking about the issue or the dynamics rather than yeah and that's what i wanted to show that the the experience of confronting death it's that the idea of control and your walls go up because to surrender to it is so painful and emotional and awful and it takes time and it yeah. takes time for the characters in the play to surrender and Dan, the main character, kind of gets there before everyone else mm. and says, you've got to get on board because this is happening. So it's that that process of control mm. and surrender mm. that kind of underpins the whole show. Yeah, yeah, and it was particularly pertinent with the mo- his mother having um, dementia. Yeah. And that's the interesting thing about Dan is he's avoiding death through his mother mm. um, and then has to confront it himself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's um, yeah a really interesting play in the way that you've utilised props as well and the stage, which I just think is fantastic because it really becomes more about the actors and the text mm. And they're, you know, used in very particular ways to support the text. So, yeah, it seems like it's been very well thought through. Yeah. Um, in terms of it being at La Mama, like that's obviously a fantastic venue to have any play in Melbourne. Is this your first play that you've written that's been staged or have you been involved in other plays around, um, you know, other issues? I've done lots of writing before, but this yeah. is kind of the first play that I've had ownership over mm. um, myself. So we developed it at La Mama at the end of 2017. Um, so it's been a year and a half in between versions. Um, but La Mama, I just incredible it's set up for artists Mm. it's run by artists um and it feels like the perfect place to put on a show like this at this time uh la mama's been going 52 years um so their ability to deal with social issues and to put current plays up about social issues has always been there and i Mm. feel very proud to be one of those plays in that huge legacy. Exactly. Thank you. Yeah, it's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And um, obviously part one building of La Mama had a tragic accident yes. um, yeah. and there was a fire. So the um, one that you might be thinking of on Faraday Street is not being used, but the courthouse still is, which yeah. is on the corner of Elgin almost. Um, and Rathdown, I think it is, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Um, so in terms of people attending this play, they can see the play. They can also go to the panel discussion, which you're both featured on as well as others, yeah. which is on Wednesday. Yeah, tomorrow, tomorrow night. night. Um, yeah. So it's a panel discussion to mark the day. Tomorrow is the first day that people will be able to initiate the process of voluntary assisted dying. Um, And I thought because the play was on, it was important to kind of mark it. Um, And the 
what we're thinking about for the panel is that it's kind of how did we get here mm. and where are we going? So yeah. what's happened? What's going to happen in the future? Um, so we've got some really interesting speakers. Conrad Marshall from The Age is um, chairing the panel. Carolyn's on it. Uh, we've got the Attorney General, Jill Hennessy, the leader of the Reason Party, Fiona Patton, uh, Marg, who is a retired nurse who's looking to uh, go through the process of voluntary assisted dying. Um, and we've also got Cass Hall on it and Nick Carr, a GP. So it's a very full panel, yeah. which will be very interesting. So that's on tomorrow night after the show. Uh, the show is sold out beforehand, but mm-hmm. people are welcome to come to La Mama um, at about quarter to eight, eight o'clock mm-hmm. to um, come in and see the panel. Um, but then the show's on till Sunday. So if you're interested in booking, you can go to the La Mama website. Yes, which is La Mama. I don't have, I've got Citizen Theatre up, which is why I don't have that one. Lamama.com.au, right. I'm pretty sure. It is. Um, yeah, but if you checked. Google La Mama, it will definitely yeah. come up. Yeah, um, it's on till the June the 23rd. Yeah. yeah, so it finishes on Sunday. So tomorrow is sold out, but you're welcome to come yeah. to the panel. And then we've got shows Thursday, Friday, Saturday at 7.30 and Sunday at 4 o'clock. Yeah, it's going to be an amazing panel because I've interviewed Fiona twice. Yeah. Yeah, and I know great. Jill's really impressive because she was the Minister for Health That's as yeah. well. Yeah, and now she's yeah. the Attorney General. So yeah. it shows uh, how how emotional they are about the day as well that they're, they're choosing to come. So yeah. I think it's a really nice occasion for people to come together. There'll be people in the audience that are looking to access it. There'll be mm. people... I know there's people in the audience that have been campaigners, so it's kind of like a gathering mm. of of different people who the issue affects, and mm. I think it'll be a really special event. Yeah, no doubt it will, yeah. yeah. It's been so wonderful to speak to both of you and I really appreciate your time and your expertise and sharing your personal experiences and um, yeah congratulations on this play Rory thanks and Carolyn on your wonderful work in this field very broad field thank you I've been speaking with playwright Rory Godbold who has written the play that is showing at La Mama right now When the Light Leaves and it's directed by Jade Kirchett. Yep, Kirchett. Kirchett. And it's um, got some amazing actors, Thomas Parrish, Lee Scully, Veronica Thomas and Michelle Robertson. And um, there's quite a few performances you can access on um, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So, yeah, as you said, sold out on Wednesday, but you can still go to the panel at quarter to eight. Quarter to eight, yeah. Yep. Excellent. And it runs for about 70 minutes, so it's very accessible. And um, as I said, it's also at La Mama Courthouse, which is on, sorry, Drummond Street, 349 Drummond Street in Carlton. Uh, As I said, I've been speaking with Rory Godbold and also Dr Carolyn Johnston from the Melbourne University's Law School. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.